Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 13, we'll be continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, last week, if you remember, or in the last couple weeks, actually, we looked at John 13, and we looked at what some commentators have called the cleansing of the new covenant community, that we saw first the literal cleansing of the disciples in the washing of their feet, that this sacrificial love of Christ was put on full display, acted out in this parable, if you will, of his love for them by stooping down and washing their stinky filthy feet, okay? This is what the love of Christ displayed, and we saw that he literally got down and cleansed their feet as this picture of their need to be spiritually washed and cleansed by him. But we looked at last week this figurative cleansing of the people of God in the dismissal of Judas as he is identified by our Lord and dismissed to go and do his work of betrayal. And we see that after our Lord has cleansed and purified his people in casting out the betrayer from them, we're going to see today that he now turns to his disciples, the true people of God according to faith, and he's going to now give them his parting instructions. He's going to now turn to them and give him give them his parting instructions, preparing them for his coming death, foretelling his departure, and describing their inability to follow him where he is going. But we're also going to see today that he points them to two very important truths, namely his great glory in his salvation in his work of salvation, and his great love for them displayed in his, death, in his death upon the cross. And that we'll see today that it is the glory of the Son, chiefly on display in his sacrificial death, that not only glorifies the triune God, but it is the ground and foundation for this new commandment that Christ is going to give his people to love one another, just as he laid down his life and loved them. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's holy word this morning. I'll begin at verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your holy, infallible word to us, your people, by which you reveal to us your plan of redemption fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would illumine your word to us, that we might see and hear and understand your word this morning for what it truly is, not the word of men, but the word of the living God. Would you write your word upon our hearts this morning as we seek to understand these things? We pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to break these couple verses into three parts this morning. First, we're going to see in verses 31 and 32, the glory of the cross, the glory of the cross. Then we will turn in verses 33 and 34 to look at the new commandment in Christ, the new commandment in Christ. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see in verse 35, the message to the world, the message to the world. So we see in verse 31 that after Judas the betrayer has been cast out and this new covenant community has been cleansed, Jesus turns to his disciples, the true people of God, and points them to his coming glorification. And he says in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. You'll remember just one chapter before, in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus, after the Greeks seek after him, he turns and he says these words, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Jesus here in verse 31 says, now is the Son of Man glorified. In verse 12, it was the time has come, now we see the time is now. But you might ask yourself, why now? Why this moment, right? If we think about what just happened previously, the betrayer of our Lord has just been sent out to do his worst. He's just been sent out to do his works. The works of darkness have now been put into motion. The betrayer has gone out, he's been sent out, and our Lord now knows it is only a matter of time before his excruciating death on the cross and his brutal crucifixion. And so we saw last week Satan had entered into Judas to do this work. He's going out to do this work, and now it looks like the room is getting darker. Why does Jesus now say, now is the Son of Man glorified? Why does he now say, it is now time for me to be glorified? It seems like the opposite of glory, right? It looks like death and betrayal and defeat. But what we see in our passage is that what looks like the beginning of defeat is actually the beginning of glory. That what looks like the beginning of defeat for our Lord is actually the beginning of His glory. That out of His death will come life. After the cross crumbs the crown, after his sufferings comes 
glory. And this is where we see the true glory of the cross. That our Lord here, in this great proclamation of His coming glory, He looks forward to His coming death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, and His exaltation and glorification at the Father's right hand. That the eternal Son of God, we know from John chapter 1, takes on flesh. And He becomes the Son of Man, right? That was promised in Daniel chapter 7, the second and last Adam to do everything that the first Adam failed to do. By working and obeying God perfectly as man in our place, right? The technical language is our federal head. He comes to represent us, securing perfect righteousness and entering God's eternal Sabbath rest and glory forever with Him. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. And by His obedience, right? What does Philippians say? Even unto death on the cross, for unworthy sinners, Christ has come to, uh, to propitiate the divine wrath of God for His people, that they might be saved from judgment, reconciled to God, and as we see in our passage, the triune God glorified in the work of the incarnate Son of God. And that what's so amazing about this as we contemplate and think about this, it is that precisely the moment when it appears that Christ is defeated as He's hanging there on a Roman cross, betrayed by His closest friends, suffering on the cross, when the one who claimed to be Christ is suffering, where the one who claimed to be God dies, where it looks like all hope is lost, that is actually the moment where His glory shines clearest. John Calvin said this, it is at the cross where the glory of God shines brightest. It is at the cross where the glory of God shines brightest. It is at the cross where the sin of God's people is placed on Christ. It is at the cross where the divine wrath for sin is poured out on the Son. It is at the cross where the justice and mercy of God kiss. It is at the cross where the amazing love of God is put on full display his glory shines forth in the salvation of His people. The Apostle Paul will say it like this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing love of God. This is what we just sang about. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? This is the amazing love of God, Christ dying for the ungodly. This is the glory of the cross. This is the glory of God in the Gospel. 
that it is Christ's sacrificial, substitutionary death bearing in His body our sins upon the cross that not only brings forgiveness to us and new life in Christ, but becomes the irrefutable proof of God's unconditional, eternal, and amazing love for His people. And we see that it is this amazing love of God displayed in the glory of the Son of Man on the cross that is the ground and foundation of our love for one another. That brings us to our second point this morning, the new commandment in Christ. That we see in verse 33, our Lord foreshadows His coming suffering and death and predicts His imminent departure. He predicts His imminent departure. He will depart from the disciples bodily. They will seek after Him. But as He says to them, where He is going, they cannot now come. And it's really interesting. Several commentators point out what is kind of beginning here with these words of our Lord. It seems kind of odd that He would begin with telling them that He's leaving. But this is actually a genre in the Bible, what many people call a farewell discourse. That if you look to Moses or some of the Old Testament prophets, before they would depart, before their death, they would give what many call a farewell discourse to instruct the people and tell them what they are to do in light of their coming death and departure. And so we can see here in our passage, and we'll really see this throughout the whole Upper Room Discourse, is that just as Moses, before his death, gives a farewell speech to the people of Israel on the verge of entering the Promised Land and experiencing the fruit of God's mighty deliverance from slavery in the Exodus in the Old Testament, so now here in the Gospel of John, Christ before His death, gives His people a farewell speech, the new Israel of God, on the verge of experiencing God's mighty deliverance, not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin and death. That by Christ's work on the cross and His glorious resurrection, He will bring about this new and better exodus. And just as Moses predicts his death and departure and then exhorts the people of Israel how they are to live, so we see here our Lord predicts his future death and departure and exhorts and commands his people on how they should live. And we see that chiefly in verse 34 in Christ's new commandment. In Christ's new commandment. He says these words, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That before our Lord departs, before His betrayal and death, before He is taken out of this world, our Lord leaves His people with this new commandment. Love one another. Three simple words. Love one another, just as I have loved you. But the first question that you might be thinking this morning is, what's so new about this new commandment? (laughs) 
What's so new about this new commandment? Why does our Lord use the word new? We already read this morning from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19.18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law summarized in the Ten Commandments given by Moses. And Jesus, even back in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, will say that in these two commandments, summarize the whole law, and on them hang all the law and the prophets. So what's so new about this new commandment? Well, we can say in one sense, there's nothing new about this new commandment as to the matter, the substance, and the content of it. It is the same law, it is the same commandment that's been there from the beginning. But in another sense, we can say that there's everything new about this new commandment as to the form, the motive, and the delivery of it. As one Puritan said, it is the law delivered not by the hand of Moses or by the hand of God, but the law delivered by the hand of Christ the law delivered by the hand of Christ. That you'll notice a shift here in the words. It is no longer love your neighbor as yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. That we see in the person and work of Christ the love of God on full display. That Jesus here grounds His commands for His disciples to love one another, not in some abstract moral principle, but in the concrete act of His own love displayed to them. Not in a legal demand under the law as a covenant of works by which they are somehow to earn life, but grounded in the finished work of Christ in God's covenant of grace appealing to the law of love written upon their hearts, hearts of flesh. And I think it's in, the, in John's letter in 1 John where we see really the newness of this new commandment. If you wanted to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Many of you know the Apostle John not only wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, but three other letters. And in this first letter, I think we have here in chapter 2 a sort of commentary by the Apostle John on what our Lord said in the Upper Room Discourse. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, (laughs) but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But then he says this in verse 8. But at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him, that is Christ, and in you. That in one sense, there is no new commandment. It is an old one. But in another sense, it is new because this law has been fulfilled fully and finally in the person and the work of Christ. And in God's covenant of grace, this same law is written upon the hearts of God's people. This is what was promised in the prophet Jeremiah in 31, that I will write my law upon your hearts. 
in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart of flesh, taking away your heart of stone. That God's people now, as new creations in Christ, having been transformed by Him, show the work of God in them, not written with ink, as Paul says, but written by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And God's people show this work has been done in them by fulfilling the command of Christ to love one another just as He loved them. That it is because Christ has fulfilled the law of love in His perfect love for His people, displayed chiefly in His death on the cross, that you and I can now love and serve one another. Not under a covenant of works, but in God's covenant of grace. Not motivated in order to somehow earn eternal life by our good works, but because we have been given life by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the law delivered directly from the hand of God, which requires perfect and perpetual obedience, which was broken by Adam and the people of Israel, but the law delivered from the hand of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfills the law for us, declares us righteous by His mercy, apart from works of the law, and has now written that same law on our hearts of flesh, has given us His Spirit to strengthen us that we might obey His commands out of thankfulness. So we see that it is indeed the same law, the same commandment, but it is delivered differently. And I think in some ways we see this kind of pictured and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and the two sets of tablets of the law that were received by the people of Israel. That after Moses received the law, written and delivered by the very finger of God on tablets of stone, he comes down from the mountain and the people have already broken the law. They've already broken and violated the covenant through their sin and disobedience. And if you remember, Moses throws down the tablets. They are broken and shattered on the ground, and the people cry out. Just like Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden, we see the people have too violated and broken this covenant and law. But we see in Exodus 34 that there are new tablets that are commissioned containing the exact same law, but are hewn out, not directly by God, but by the hand of the mediator, Moses in this case. And they are placed in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. And I think in this picture we see this pointing forward to the work of Christ who the first law was broken and violated by the people in Adam, in, under the covenant of works, but the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true mediator, He has fulfilled the law and now places it in our hearts, written on hearts of flesh, fulfilling what we could not and now extending His mercy to us, His people. 
So this, brothers and sisters, is the foundation of Christ's new commandment to love and serve one another. But we see thirdly and finally that it is by this distinguishing mark that the world will know who are the disciples of Christ. And that brings us to our third point, the message to the world. The message to the world. That we see finally that this love that we are to have for one another will have an effect. It will have an effect, namely, in all people. That it is by this love for one another that Jesus says all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. It is by this love for one another that the world will know who are the disciples of Christ. Not by what they wear, not by their outward appearance, not by what they abstain from in these man-made religions, not by their great works of piety or charity, not even by how much theology they know, but he says, by their love for one another. This is how the world will know, by their genuine brotherly love for one another. Not only will this love distinguish, as we read this morning, true Christian from false, but it will also be this love that all men will see and know who are disciples of Christ. And in many ways, this really leads us right into our application this morning as we look to our first point, love for one another as evangelism. Love for one another as evangelism. That I think many of us, if you've grown up in the church at all or been around the church at all, have heard of many what I will call works-based views of evangelism. You need to go out and do this. You need to invite this many people per month. You need to do this. You need to do that. And we end up heaping the law back onto people, saying this is the only way that God's work will be accomplished if you do this, this, and this. But we see in our passage this morning that Jesus says, it is by our love for one another that the world will see the love of Christ and be changed. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 2? He tells the people, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That Peter here assumes that God's people will be interacting with unbelievers that there will be some sense in which we interact with those that do not confess Christ. And he tells the people to keep their conduct honorable, to show love for one another, and that by this love, by these good deeds, the people who do not confess Christ might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the Orthodox Catechism, in the third section on gratitude, one of the reasons that it says we are to continue in love and good works is so that we might win others to Christ. That there's something chiefly about our love for one another, I think first and foremost displayed in our love for our brothers and sisters in the faith, but also as we extend that love to unbelievers, that the world sees that love that we have for one another and sees Christ in that love. This does not change them, right? The gospel still needs to be proclaimed to them, but I think that 
Many of, for, at least for me in particular, this was a very freeing thought for me. That simply by loving and caring for others, they might see the love of Christ and that we might give them a reason for the hope that is in us. But the second thing we see this morning, not only love one another as evangelism, but we see that love for one another needs direction. Love for one another needs direction. You might be saying to yourself this morning, this, this is great, this command to love one another is great, but how do we do this? How do we love one another? What does it look like to love one another? And in our world, we think that we can define what love is, right? We live in a world and in a society that thinks they can define what love is. That love is whatever we want it to be. That we determine what love is. Actually, we don't even have to define it or describe it. We just define it by itself by saying love is love, right? We don't even have to describe it. There's no direction. There's no compass. There's no guide. There's no rule to love. This is how the world sees love. It's superficial. It's one-sided. It's agree with me, accept me. That is love. There's no direction. There's no guide. And in fact, there's even professing Christians that reject the law of God and say, I just follow love. I just follow love. Whatever that looks like to me, I'm going to follow that. But I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ. He says this, love requires direction. <laughs> love requires direction. It requires a guide. He says, love is motivation, but it is not self-interpreting direction. We don't get to define what love is. God's Word alone does. Because as we read this morning, God Himself is love. God and His Word alone defines what love is. That it is God's Word alone that tells us how we are to love Him and how we are to love one another. And it, we have in God's law the guide and direction for us as believers. Love is defined for us in God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. The first four, we see our love for God. And in the second six, we see our love for for neighbor, right? If somebody ever asked you, how do I love God? How, how do I show my love for God? How should I love God? The first commandment is to worship God and Him alone. Worship the triune God alone. The second commandment, worship Him in the way He has commanded, with reverence and awe, gathering together with God's people on the Lord's day. That's how you love the Lord. <laughs> You're loving the Lord right now, hopefully in your hearts. You are loving the Lord by gathering together, worshiping Him with God's people in the way He has commanded. This is love for God. But if someone said, how do I love my neighbor? Do you just get to define what that is? Do you just get to decide what love looks like? No, we see that summarized in the latter six commandments, that we are to honor those in authority even when we don't always agree with them not taking the lives of others or hating one another, but by preserving and loving one another. Not lusting after one another, but honoring marriage and desiring purity even to the level of our own heart. 
not stealing from others, but working hard to help those who are in need, not lying, gossiping, or backbiting, but speaking the truth in love and building one another up, not coveting or desiring what we don't have, but being content with the Lord in His providence has given us. This is how we love one another. This, Paul says in Romans 13, this kind of love is the fulfilling of the law. This is how we fulfill the law of love. Seeking the good of others above ourselves. Showing hospitality to one another. Loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Looking first and foremost not to someone else's sin against you, but your sin against God. And I think it's here chiefly that we kind of have a key into how to understand this love for one another. That when we stand in awe of the fact that Christ has forgiven us, despite all of our sins, despite all of our shortcomings, despite all of our failings, standing in awe of the fact that Christ loved and forgave us, how much more should we extend that love and forgiveness to one another. As we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. And we know all too well that in Christ's church and in His people, there is a multitude of sins. <laughs> there is a multitude of sins in the church and in our own hearts. And it can seem impossible for us to, con- to fulfill this command of Christ to love one another when there's so much sin in us and so much sin in other people. How could I possibly love one- that person? I've been hurt by them. I've been broken by them. How could I possibly show love for them? And the way the world handles hurt and the way the world handles sin is it just says, forget about you, I'm going to separate, I'm going to divide, forget you, and forget what you've done. It just gives up, puts its hands up, and says, I'm done. But in the Scriptures we see that love covers a multitude of sin. Not by covering up sin and trying to hide it, but by confessing it to the Lord and to one another. Willingly confessing our sins to our brothers and sisters. (laughs) Brother, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? (laughs) Sister, I harmed you in this way. Will you forgive me? And it's not by forfeiting our relationships, but by forgiving one another that this law of Christ is fulfilled. That because God has written His law on our new hearts of flesh, we actually now have the power to love and forgive and serve one another as Christ has commanded, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not only the example of how we should love and forgive one another, but the motivation for our love and service to one another. And I think that if we're honest, we all struggle with this. You might say to me, Kindle, that sounds great. 
Sounds easy. Just love one another. It's so simple. It's so easy. Just do it. And I think for some of us this morning, we might be saying, I have nothing left in the tank. I'm on empty. I'm broken. I have nothing left to give to this person, to this situation. I'm done. I want to throw my hands up. And so where do we go when we feel this way? Do we just kind of white knuckle our obedience? Do we just kind of grit our teeth and say, I'm going to get through it? Do we look to self-help books and motivational speeches to try to get us amped up to go out and do this? Can we produce this true love for one another by our own willpower? The answer that the Scripture gives is no. That it is only by looking to Christ in the Gospel and by looking to the love and glory of God in the cross that we can be changed that we can actually be changed, that we can actually desire to love and serve one another. By beholding Christ displayed in the gospel, we see his great love for us. And we extend that to others, that despite our sin, despite our unworthiness, despite our ungratefulness for how much he's forgiven us, we can now love and serve one another from a pure heart. We will fail at this. It will not always be easy. But God has given us His Word and His Spirit to guide us, to sustain us for this command by His grace that we might look to Him and His finished work. Not only for our justification, but for our continual sanctification and the motivation of our love for one another. So let's remember that this morning and thank God for His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son who in the fullness of time was born of a woman, took upon Himself our nature. And as John says, we have seen the glory of the only God displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his life and in his death, we see your perfect love for your people made manifest. And if we're honest this morning, Lord, we, we are overwhelmed by this commandment. If we truly understand what the Lord is saying in these words, love one another, there's a sense in which we should feel totally and completely overwhelmed. Because who can do this? Who can actually truly love one another as the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us? But we know that it is only because of Christ's love for us, fulfilling the law perfectly and giving us the perfect righteousness of Christ that we can actually live for Him. It is only because you have saved us from the bondage and slavery and curse of the law that we can now live according to your law because of what you have done for us in Christ. Help us, Lord, this morning to trust in you when we fail, when we feel weary and burdened by our sin and the sin of others. Help us to come to you laying down our burdens, knowing that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, that you carry us by your grace. You will sustain us into the heavenly promised land and you will guide us by your Spirit both day and night. 
Help us, Lord. We need your spirit. We need your strength. Give us grace to believe and obey what you have commanded us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.